You're listening to a special podcast of Uncommon Sense. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRR every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm. John Pilger joined us in the studio to talk about his new film, The Coming War on China. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR. I'm Amy Mullins and I'm really excited now to have John Pilger in the studio with me and he's here to discuss his new film, The Coming War on China. Now, John Pilger really doesn't need an introduction, but just in case you're not aware, John Pilger is a renowned investigative journalist and documentary filmmaker, very prolific, and uh, he picks some pretty serious and under under focused uh, topics, and I'm really excited to be dis- going over the various issues that uh, he brings up in this new film, which really focuses on uh, China and the US. So thanks very much, John, for joining us. You're very welcome. First of all, the title of the film is called The Coming War on China. Mm-hmm. This is suggesting that a war might be waged on or against China yeah. by another actor. So yeah. obviously here we've got the United States. Mm. This is a pretty different narrative. We don't see that narrative come up very often. And the only time I've actually really come across any uh, of this kind of narrative is from Chinese people themselves. So really, what brought you to this point Mm. of wanting to cover this story and understand um, the dynamics that are really at play in the Asia-Pacific region Mm. between China and America? Well, it's a very good point. Why don't we see it from that perspective? And that says... A great deal about that misnamed creature called the mainstream media and a lot of other um, of our own kind of propaganda which usually leaves out at least 50% of every major story. Um, What made me start to make a film about this? Well it's two years ago and Uh, I was intrigued when Barack Obama announced in the Australian Parliament here in Canberra, when he was here, uh, what was called a pivot to Asia. And what that really meant was the transfer of something like two-thirds of U.S. naval forces into the Asia-Pacific. So I researched this, and um, I found that Uh, Of course, all of these were to be targeted at China, and it was becoming clear then that a new enemy for the United States was arising, and that was China. Uh, Why? Because China is the world's second biggest economic power, and just its mere existence uh, threatens the dominance of the United States. So, Here we have the top dog being feeling rather insecure about its dominant place in the world. But that's all very well. Those are kind of abstract terms. But this was developing into something that could be extremely provocative towards a nuclear power, which China is. Um, And uh, uh, unfortunately, the arrival of President Trump has made... Um, those uh, um, uh, considerations and this film all too timely. The U.S. has clearly declared China 
a new enemy. It doesn't know how to fight this new enemy. The US is not used to fighting big countries. It usually fights defenseless, small, or rather takes over small defenseless countries. This is a big country. So there's a great deal of propaganda being thrown at China. There's, uh, and and as I say, a great deal of pro- provocation in these 400 bases, US bases, that surround China, uh, are missiles and bombers and battle groups, all of them um, suggesting the possibility of accident. Most wars begin by accident. I don't suggest that the United States wants a nuclear war with China or anyone else. But when you push it that far, then the the odds narrow very quickly. So I think at the moment we're in a very precarious situation uh, towards China. It is astonishing that in Australia we are meant to be in the Asia-Pacific region. We know so little from, as you suggested at the beginning, from that perspective. And let's pick up on a couple of those points. So you say it can start by accident. Mm. You, I've heard you mention that it really takes 12 minutes to make that decision from when you, you realise there's something wrong and mm. to when the, the missile is launched. Mm. That's a pretty fast turnaround. And as we saw in the film, um, we almost came close to that uh, missile or a nuclear weapon being launched. Mm. Indeed. I mean, in the film, uh, there's an interview with... Uh, uh, a U.S. Air Force serviceman who was part of uh, a nuclear missile battery on Okinawa. And during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was all about Cuba and the Soviet Union, um, they were ordered to fire their nuclear missiles not at Cuba or the Soviet Union, but at China. And... It was only the querying of this by one particular officer when he couldn't work out why. Why China? Why are we targeting a country that is not involved in this unfolding crisis? Um, That the order was re-examined and it was found to be a false order. So when we're talking about mistakes and accidents, that's almost a classic form of not so much a mistake or an accident, it was actually quite deliberate because the person who gave this order was later stood down and something had happened with that person. But it's quite interesting. He talks about, you know, he came out that day and realised that they had had the power to really, if not blow up the world, blow up a lot of the world just by that, that, uh, that wanton, one wanton act. Yeah, and you spoke to a nuclear expert and there's this great graph which really Mm. demonstrates just how significant uh, a nuclear weapon being fired would have, even just one of them, uh, and that it really would blanket almost the entire earth and have significant consequences even if people weren't wiped out or killed Mm. because of it, but that we wouldn't really be able to function. Environmentally, it would be a complete nightmare. No, No one doubts that now. It's the way it's... it's uh, is it really the, front of mind, though? Yes. Uh, is it front of mind? Yeah. No, no. And that's what's so extraordinary. It, it almost has a, a kind of similarity with the way people um, are, are, in, are discouraged from understanding what is happening to the climate. Uh, 
but this is rather more urgent because this could happen literally overnight in which he describes uh, a 10-year period which would be dark and cold and food crops would not be grown. You couldn't grow them. So those of us who would survive would have to scratch at the earth. Now, this sounds all pretty doomsday and people may draw back and say, oh, how can I imagine that? But, you know, it's not all that long ago when many of us went into the streets. Uh, Well, for some people, it may be quite a long time ago. But there were great movements of people opposed to this kind of Armageddon, this kind of this this apocalyptic view of humanity. Uh, That's gone away. But the nuclear threat hasn't gone away. And we really have to consider that. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like we've been focusing on landmines and other kind of war issues, but we've really got a bit of nuclear fatigue. I don't know whether we've got nuclear fatigue. I think our our propaganda, our manipulation in Western countries has sent us off in other directions, away from even examining the causes of war, examining how politics really work. Uh, I think we've been sent off on on single issues often and uh, we've often concentrated on our own concerns rather than on something that collectively would affect all of us so much it could end life as we know it. And that's, that's the most, surely the most urgent uh, possibility. And uh, so the film is not meant to frighten people although it's meant to warn and it's meant to give information. And we should all be grown-ups, I think, and start to think about that, that it isn't just, for example, the personality of Donald Trump, but there is a great system behind Trump, well before Trump, long before Trump, that has produced something that we need to know about, we need to analyse, and we need to be alerted uh, to its changes. You do. And uh, there is a really excellent quote at the end of the film which picks up on that where you say that it delivers a warning to all of us, can we really afford to be silent? Mm. And I think that's important because you're not only saying that we need to be aware of this issue and discuss it, but then we need to start taking action and collectively and to Mm. think of foreign relations and foreign policy and these issues not as distanced from the everyday and from us Mm. uh, over there in that kind of parliament, but actually here in the grassroots that affects Mm. all of humanity. Mm. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. That's just so important. And I think what really draws it out is this significant uh, focus that you have in your film on um, America's involvement in the Asia-Pacific. And this is really a case study of their imperialism mm. and militarism. It's in the Marshall Islands in the mm. 1940s. And I did a little bit of looking into the background of this. And uh, Marshall Islands isn't actually that far from Australia. It's mm. probably closer than a lot of other nations yeah. that we yeah. have very close relations with. 
Mm. And uh, so it's got about 29 low-lying atolls and five islands, and it was placed under this UN International Trusteeship Agreement. Mm. And it, it had a long history of being passed around between major powers, and America ended up be- becoming the uh, administering authority mm. in 1947. But in 1946, it started evacuating Bikini Islanders, um, that Bikini Island is or atoll is part of the Marshall Islands, and uh, that was even before they'd taken over uh, administership of this particular uh, country. And uh, that was to start commencing nuclear testing. And mm-hmm. this is in the height or the beginning of the Cold War, because that's the end of really World War Two. You really describe and you show the effects of the nuclear testing and certainly the most significant one is um, the Castle Bravo uh, bomb, uh, which was a hydrogen bomb. And Mm. as you say in the film, and it's really quite shocking, is that the hydrogen bomb had the explosive power of the bombing of Hiroshima 1,000 times over. So... Mm. This just was huge. It was unprecedented mm. and it was the largest detonation of a nuclear bomb that America has ever conducted mm. that we know of. Why did you focus on the Marshall Islands to highlight this? And did you see it as one of the most poignant examples of American involvement in the Asia Pacific? Well, I th- well, yes, partly that, yes. But for two reasons, I suppose. Uh, the first was, as you've described, it was... Uh, not the beginning of the nuclear age. The nuclear age, of course, began with the the atomic bombing of Japan. But this is where nuclear weapons were tested. And perhaps the most shocking statistic of all was one that uh, was told to me by Tony de Brum, who was then the foreign minister of the Marshall Islands, that between 1946 and 1958, the equivalent of one Hiroshima bomb, the equivalent explosive power of one Hiroshima, was exploded every day for 12 years in these islands. Now, as you mentioned, this was the UN, uh, the US after the Second World War got UN trusteeship of this. And this was meant to be a sacred trust in which it looked after, it was meant to look after the health and well-being of the Marshall Islanders. Instead, they were used as guinea pigs. And the film reveals um, an experiment called Project 4.1, which was originally set up as the testing of mice under uh, in nuclear explosions and became the testing of human beings. And the reason I started the film was, I suppose, first to remind viewers that this is the end product. If countries' nuclear powers go to war, this is likely to happen. Here you have it. Here you have the victims of nuclear weapons. This is what's likely to happen all over the world. It was also, I think, to show the extent and ruthlessness of post-World War II U.S. power But right in the middle of the Marshall Islands, on the biggest island, and that's Kwajalein, is the Ronald Reagan Missile Test Facility. This is a very secretive base. It was set up in the late 1960s with the target as China. So there's the connection between what the U.S. did in Bikini and 
after the Second World War throughout these islands brought round to the possibility of a coming war on China. This particular base commands the Pacific all the way to China and it, it, it tests missiles and space program missiles that uh, can be uh, used against China. So the, the whole Asia-Pacific, it's one of America's stepping stones to um, a great country on the other side of the Pacific with which it has a very troubled history. It, co- it was one of those that colonized and exploited China. Um, and it's very interesting when you read of Donald Trump's now outrageous ban on Muslims and so on, but that's not new. I mean, that's <laughs> been going on. I mean, as if, as if Trump invented it. For, as James Bradley, the author, explains in my, in my film, for almost a century, Chinese were banned from the United States for one reason only, that they were Chinese. Um, so that, that whole sense of China and the Chinese as being the yellow peril is very much part of our uh, political culture. And particularly in Australia, you know, it's not all that long ago where we regarded Asia as something that might fall down on us as if by the force of gravity. And that was about yellow peril. The words might not have been said, although they were said, of course, by Mr. Barton and others in the beginning of the independent Australia. So that sense of China as being the great other, the great threat, is very much... uh, is, is something that is being exploited now. It's a very, and it, it's being done in a subtle way. It insinuates our media. So we have, for example, a rather verbose American admiral turns up. There's one called Admiral Harry Harris. He's always coming down here with his maps and graphs and pictures about China building another great wall in the sand across the Pacific. So China's again the threat. And Australia should make up its mind which side it's on. Australia does has a dilemma, have a dilemma because its biggest trader is China, but it has this, this, uh, this relationship with the United States that it really needs to revise. So th- all these add up to a warning that we have to start thinking outside what we're told. That's the essence of this film. Just think outside what you're told day after day. Uh, Don't accept assumptions. Don't accept stereotypes. This doesn't mean to say that anyone's apologizing for the for the lack of freedom in China or anything like that, but we don't want to go to war with a great country. No, I mean, you really have opened a bit of a Pandora's box of uh, free intellectual thinking, which is wonderful, uh, because, you know, one of the examples you give is that in China with the South China Sea and the Spratly Islands, it's Mm. highly contested, and it's only really come to a a real boiling point because of American involvement there, Mm. and that uh, the media coverage of this issue is really that China is the aggressor that's unrealistic and irrational and, Mm. well, maybe not even irrational, but... um, 
actually really calculating about how it's going to dominate the South China Sea and that that's an act of aggression against America as well as it's America's allies mm. in the Asia Pacific. How do we... I mean, it's clear that you really do need to keep questioning these narratives, not only because China is our close neighbour and we have economic links, but there's a lot of Chinese migrants in Australia. And this whole idea that they're different from us or that they do represent some kind of threat is quite shocking. And one of the best quotes, I think, in your film is from um, Eric Lee, who's Mm. an entrepreneur and he's a thinker as well. And he was talking about the fact that China's objectives are modest. He's quite bemused when he says this (laughs) because he can't quite understand why America perceives them as this really big, hairy, evil threat. And that really all that China wants to do is to keep the US from dominating the Asia Pacific. Mm. And as you say, there is this kind of metaphorical noose around China. With these 400 military bases. Do you think China's being fair and reasonable in terms of its response? And how do you perceive America on, in this as well? Well, I don't know about fair and reasonable. They are they're going to take a very hard-nosed, pragmatic view of the threat. And America is now perceived in one sense as a direct threat. For example, China has changed its nuclear weapons strategy from low alert to high alert. That's had almost no publicity in the West, certainly not in Australia. Uh, Not all that long ago, China used to keep its missiles and nuclear warheads separate. That's low alert. It now puts them together. That's high alert. That's as a direct result of the kind of provocations that have come from, for example, in 2015, Operation Talisman Sabre, huge uh, naval, air and naval exercise in which Australia, Australian forces played a prominent role, uh, rehearsed a blockade through the Malacca Straits and the Lombok Straits of China. Now, uh, yes, we knew something about this exercise in Australia, but we didn't know what it was really up to. Well, if you look at the website on the Australian government's page, it actually is very vague. You would not know at all what it was for or even yeah, really where yeah. it actually was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the look, the, the power that we have to embrace is the power of information always. That's number one. Number one. I mean, that's why the conversation we're having is valuable. That anything that starts to question the 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 dominant assumptions that really give public acquiescence to very very dangerous policies. That's why information is so important, and that's why governments and their vested interests place so much importance and put so much money. The Pentagon spends billions on propaganda. Uh, One of their generals, General David Petraeus, some years ago said that, uh, and he was, when he was running the war in Afghanistan, said that uh, this was a war of perception played through the media. And he would almost boasted that he spent more time with the media than he did on military matters because that's what really mattered. And it's, it's that that we have to really understand about this. And China is one 
very vivid example, a very urgent example of of this. Uh, I mean, the thing that I I'd been to China for a long time, I was astonished that how little I knew. I was astonished how little we know. I was astonished by all the uh, so so many of the the stereotypes fell away, and they didn't fall away without me understanding that as the film makes very clear in China, you cannot openly criticize the center, though it's not a monolith. It's very interesting. It's not a monolith. The The script of this film uh, is actually being published by a university in China, the full wow. script. But the film itself, uh, the Chinese are desperate to show the film. But as they say to me privately, Sorry, we can't Scott Tiananmen Square in it. I make clear what what an open sore Tiananmen Square is politically in China, and there are people there who have criticised Beijing, criticised the government, and paid for it with their freedom. But it's not monolithic, and that makes it very interesting. Um, there's so many interesting things about this this massive the world's most populous nation, now the world's second biggest economic power, that we just simply don't know. Um, we live in this world where we're always playing with our phones and we think that uh, we actually are saturated with information. We're not. Uh, we're saturated with something called media. Um, <clears throat> and this is one yeah. example. Mm. This is one example where we really have to change course and find out. Yeah, well, mediated information that's really not necessarily giving the whole picture. No. And as this film um, really does fill that void, that is, it's completely missing in our discussion. So I'm really glad that you have completed this film and it's showing and that uh, people have access to this information mm. in a way that they can weigh the evidence in front of them and start questioning their reality Mm. Well, I, so am I, and I, I, it's getting a good run in Australia. Uh, it's showing at the in Melbourne. It's showing at the starting at the Nova Cinema on uh, February the eighth, and uh, will run there. And it's being broadcast nationwide on SBS on April the sixteenth. So I hope many people watch it and begin talking. That's what we need to do. We definitely do. Thank you so much, John, for sharing your insights with us and for taking that huge trip around Asia-Pacific to actually mm. speak to the actors involved in this story. Thank you. You're very welcome. And that was John Pilger, who has joined me to talk about his film, The Coming War on China. As he mentioned, it is at Cinema Nova in Carlton, so not a far trip away if you're anywhere close to the CBD or even in the outer suburbs. So please do make the trip in because it's absolutely essential viewing. And it will be screened on SBS in mid-April on April the 16th at 8.30pm. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the Triple R website. Hope to see you again next time.